0: Broadband, we need it for work and for school, for our health and our economy. What's being done to bring broadband internet access within reach of every American? Let's talk about it now on Rural Broadband Today. Here's your host, Stephen Smith. Our guest today is J.C. Worrell. She is the Executive Director of the Rural Health Association of Tennessee. J.C. has more than 15 years experience in the nonprofit sector, and really thinks of herself as an advocate for making the world a healthier place. She's a graduate of Western Kentucky University with a degree in public administration and a master's in public administration from Villanova University. I invited her on the program to talk about the upcoming uh, conference of the Rural Health Association, and they've got some really great programming. Be sure to listen for that link and uh, check out what they have uh, lined up for that program, some really great topics, really great speakers. I think our listeners will particularly be interested in the broadband topics, the telehealth topics. And listening to this interview where she talks about telehealth being about more than just health care, I found that really interesting. And there's one key factor about yourself that determines a lot about your health. So I hope you enjoy my interview with J.C. Worrell, the Executive Director of the Rural Health Association of Tennessee. And thank you for joining us today on Rural Broadband Today. And I am excited to have as our guest JC Worrell. JC is the executive director of the Rural Health Association of Tennessee. Uh, welcome to the show, JC.
1: Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be
0: asked. Well, you have uh, quite a, a, a strong agenda uh, that's been published now on your website for the upcoming uh, annual conference. Of the Rural Health Association of Tennessee, and we're going to dive into that in just a moment. But before we do, uh, I'd like to get you to tell our listeners a bit about the work of the Rural Health Association of Tennessee. What what is the makeup of that organization? Who, who remembers, and what is the mission?
1: Sure. The mission of the organization is really simple. We want to improve the health of rural Tennesseans. Of course, 90% of the state is occupied uh, in rural areas. And we know that Tennessee doesn't always rank very highly in our health outcomes. So that is our focus. As an organization, of course, we're a 501c3 nonprofit And we really want to be a resource to the community and to our members on how do we help move our health outcomes in a good direction. We are a membership organization, so many of our members are um, providers. They might be from a rural hospital or clinic or practice independently. We also have most of the state's coordinated school health directors, so Tennessee is unique in that we fund our own coordinated school health directors here in the state. Every county has one, and most of them are part of our association as well. And then we've got a lot of university partners as well. So. Lincoln Memorial University, UT, Health Science Center, ETSU, any program that has rural focus, whether it's recruiting providers into rural communities or um, maybe have a policy focus, um, they're typically members also. So it's a really diverse group of people, but the common thread is we care about rural people.
0: Well, tell us a little bit about Uh, your path that brought you to the organization i believe you started uh the first day of april as the new executive director of the association so what is the career path that brought you to that place
1: wow that feels like such a long journey that i can tell you (laughs) about um yeah so i always knew essentially i'm i'm just I consider myself a public servant. So I always knew that I wanted to work in nonprofit and I grew up in central Kentucky. A small town was raised on a farm in a literal holler and um, moved away for a while. Like many young people were excited to to get out of their hometown and, and worked with various nonprofits. Um, For a while I worked in Miami for the doctor that created South Beach Diet. Dr. Arthur Agutson, and that's where I worked with schools in Buffalo, New York, and some rural communities in Mississippi and Florida, and basically, we, did, we had a research study that looked at the, um, the effects of school-based nutrition programs and changes in the, uh, the school food, so this was before low-fat cheese was found or whole-grain breads were in any of our schools, And at this time, I remember thinking um, it felt like all of the major grant dollars went to urban areas. And so I was always one raising my hand saying, what about the rural communities? What about the rural communities? And I knew I eventually would come back. And I did in 2012. 2012. Um, came back to the Kentucky area, and now I'm in Middle Tennessee. And really, I just want to serve the people. I want to help people live long, happy, healthy, and prosperous lives. And I love working with other organizations who are like-minded and have that same goal.
0: Well, there, there will be a day when you're telling stories about the time you took over the, uh, the helm of a rural health organization in the midst of a pandemic, so uh, are really the, the the beginnings of a, of a pandemic when it comes to the uh, certainly the the state response and whatnot. Tell us a bit about what that was like and the, um, and remind us there's been, of course, so much happening this year. Remind us of where we were on April the 1st in uh, Tennessee, particularly in terms of the pandemic.
1: Right. Yeah. So April 1st is my first technical day on the job and Um, If I remember right, it was April 2nd where Governor Lee really uh, announced that it was strongly recommended that people stay at home and things um, shut down for a bit. So it has definitely been a challenge um, as far as I haven't had the opportunity to meet my members and um, Mm -hmm. connect with them, of course. Um, I've met a lot of people via Zoom, um, like everybody else right now. Um, Thankfully, I have worked in a remote environment before. In a previous job, my team was spread across five time zones. So that wasn't different to me, but at least I had the opportunity to know those people before I started. Um, So like I said earlier, many of our members are healthcare providers. So obviously, they just had so many needs and were so covered up and I'll always remember the hardest part is just the speed of information, the speed that everything Mm -hmm. was happening. Every day there was a press conference. It felt like every day there was an executive order. And, you know, I was still trying to figure out how to get my email set up and and keep Uh track of everything else that was happening to support our members. So it's been challenging, but... You know, like I, I feel like um, most people have said this too. There have also been a lot of opportunity, as well, and so I've been working for those silver linings and finding new ways to work and advance our mission in ways that maybe we wouldn't have before.
0: Well, I'm sure that planning for the conference was already underway to some degree when you um, began your work there. At what point in the planning process did you and your team come to the realization that this conference that is in uh, November, we're recording is toward the end of October. And uh, Mm -hmm. so the conference is coming up quickly. At what point did you realize this is going to have to be a virtual format and we have to shift? Wow.
1: That's such a good question. I will say it was a very, very difficult decision and very emotional decision for a lot of people. Of course, I'm coming in new, so I was able to remove myself and be a little bit more objective. But so when I came in April, the conference committee actually had not yet convened because they were waiting for the new director. And I I kind of knew. I think it was by the end of April, I knew that that's probably where we were going to have to go. But of course, in any leadership position, especially when you're new to an organization, you really need to solicit the input of others and build support and went through that process. And, um, you know, we took it to the conference committee, took it to our board. And I think, you know, if you remember back may and june there was this kind of sense of well maybe after summer and maybe after this there was just kind of like we just want to wait and see a little bit longer right um but it wasn't until july when we finally decided um that we had to make a decision because we wouldn't be able to to plan just the planning aspect of it um would be hard so we made the decision it was really hard we tried to I think we considered, you know, if we did it in person, how many people could we have? And for the space that we had reserved, it would have cut our attendees by two-thirds and then deciding, you know, who who got to come and who didn't. We just didn't want to do that. So we made the decision in July and started building our conference. And we're really excited about um, the offerings. And I think we're going to reach people that we haven't reached before.
0: Well, let's dive into that agenda. It looks like you have a pre-conference and a conference. Tell us about uh, the difference and uh, give us those dates for your uh, conference.
1: Okay. Yep. The conference is November 18th, 19th, and 20th. And each of those days, we essentially have only four hours of content each of the days. So we don't start until 10 a.m. Central, and we've got several breaks throughout and we've really built it understanding that probably not everybody is going to go to every session, um, but we wanted, we wanted there to be lots of options. So we did tack on some pre-conference dates of November 10th, 11th, and 12th. And essentially, most of the conference is kind of geared towards more of population health of trying to um, bring together all of our different member groups and constituents. I think what many of your listeners may be interested in, um, our plenary sessions, which are the pre-conference and regular conference in the 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. spot central, all of those speakers are government officials. So we've got Commissioner Williams with Department of Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services, Commissioner Schwinn, Department of Education, the Director of Ten Care, Stephen Smith. And then on the conference day opening will be Dr. Lisa Piercy, who is the Commissioner of Public Health. And I'm really excited about this speaker. Also, it's a little bit different, but Johnny Stevenson, who is a Director of Office and Strategic Analysis and Communications for NASA, Marshall Space Flight Center, he is going to be talking about change management and leading through hard times, including working remotely and what it's like to be disconnected from your teammates. Um, And he's going to make some parallels there for leaders in healthcare. And then the last day is Dr. Kenyatta Lovett, who is assistant commissioner of workforce development. So since all of those people are government officials, we're making those free and open to the public and then throughout the rest of the, um, the agenda, we've got everything from telehealth and broadband to what, how COVID has impacted delivery of care, um, some conversation on vaccines and where misinformation comes from. We're seeing that people are not getting their prevention screenings the same as they were a year ago and um, some suicide prevention, all sorts of topics that would really, you know, appeal to everybody.
0: That is a very rich agenda, and I'm uh, certainly looking forward to sitting in on some of those sessions. Um, I'd like to get you to uh, give us a teaser on uh, some of these and may encourage folks to uh, register. On the, uh, looks like no, on November 18th, you have a session called Telehealth and Collaborations, a case study between Lee University and Tennessee schools. Give us a little background on that um, on that collaboration.
1: Okay, sure. First, I have to say Dr. Brenda Jones, who is the main speaker on this. She's an assistant professor of nursing with Lee University, and she is a board member with the Rural Health Association of Tennessee. And This session came about because one day I called her and I said, Dr. Jones, I thought I knew what telehealth was, but I'm learning that I know nothing about what telehealth was. Can you talk to me like a fifth grader on what it means and what people are talking about when they're telling me these things? And she was so patient and so gracious to spend some time with me and kind of walk through things and clear some things up for me. In fact, I think later we're going to do a telehealth 101 because we're seeing that people throw that word around a lot. And really, there's a lot of nuance and complication, especially if you're a provider and seeking reimbursement and things. Um, But throughout that conversation, I just found her so engaging and so knowledgeable and I asked her if she would mind putting together a session on how they're actually implementing telehealth at the university and working with the school system. So she has um, schools that she works with. They are Bradley County and Cleveland Tennessee school uh, City Schools. And she's gonna talk about how they partner their new nursing students and work with the schools to set up their system and to be able to offer some support to the students and the school nurses in those school systems. And that gives training to their nurses in the School of Nursing. And then it also provides support to the city schools. So she's going to talk about how they do that and give a little bit of that kind of like basic, like these are the lessons that we learned in incorporating this into our curriculum. And then also what I'm really excited about is um, just understanding the, the benefits as well as the limitations of telehealth. So I never want to talk about anything as if it's the silver bullet that doesn't exist in the policy world. Um, and then, of course, the collaboration piece is important. And I think you're, you'll find that anywhere. And actually, this is, this is where I shine, is really bringing people together. And so, um, you know, the, the, the issues that we're trying to solve are just too big for any one person or organization. And so um, I'm really interested in just, you know, how she made this collaboration work and how can it be replicated in other places.
0: Mm, that's a fascinating approach. And speaking of broadband, I notice you also have Crystal Ivey uh, leading one of the mm-hmm. sessions. She's the broadband director for the Tennessee Department of Economic and Community Development. And uh, so tell me, as we're looking through this agenda and we see telehealth and leveraging community assets and strengths, some topics like that, what, what do you see, especially since you've had a, uh, a very uh, rapid education in telehealth, what do mm-hmm. you feel like the role— of broadband in healthcare delivery is particularly in rural America.
1: Right. Well, I mean we've seen now, like never before, just I mean, how critical it is for people for their education, their work and their health. And I, I wanna back up just a second to make sure that we understand when we're talking about health, we're not just talking about health care. Our health is influenced by a lot of factors, including education and work, in addition to things like, you know, genetics and personal habits. So um, so your audience members who aren't immersed in public health and health policy might be interested to learn that a person's zip code is the number one predictor of health. We can look at any zip code in the United States and based on things such as access to transportation or health or environment um, impact health. Now to bring it back to what your audience may understand even more than me is how zip code influenced your access to broadband. And that in you know a very disruptive way became an essential ingredient to healthcare and education and work. And so I think that any conversation that I have had, um, I had an interview last week someone called and they wanted to talk about the rural health disparities. And they were particularly interested in racial disparities in rural areas. And it's interesting. I started off saying something about broadband and she didn't really get it. And, and which was fine. Um, Cause that's not why she called. Right. But as we were talking, we ended up going in a full circle and it came back to broadband again. And, You know, if if we're touting telehealth as a solution to access to care in rural communities, we cannot talk about that as a solution, as a way to help people that don't have access to a hospital or don't have access to a clinic. We can't talk about those things and not also talk about broadband because it's just not in the rural communities the same as it is other places.
0: Mm. Very interesting Tell me what what you have seen since uh, coming on board there from uh, some of your members, association members. What are some ways that you see them leveraging broadband to be- benefit the public?
1: We've we've seen a lot of organizations come together with community partners to offer Wi-Fi and hotspots and try to get the actual technology into student hands. And actually, uh, I'm sorry, when you asked about the session that Crystal is going to be on, so she's going to talk about the state of broadband in Tennessee, but also on that panel is Evan Freeman with the Electric Power Board of Chattanooga. And this, you know, goes as far as what we've seen. This past summer, they announced a partnership with Hamilton County Schools to provide free Internet access and hardware to homes of kids that were on free or reduced lunch programs. And so uh, it's the initiative they call HCSED Connect. And I think um, what's particularly interesting for me, again, it's all about those partnerships. So I'm interested in how they fundraise for this program, how they structured the partnership and the challenges they faced. Um, and as far as other areas, so Hamilton County is not all rural, um, although I think we can learn some lessons from them. Um, again, that's another health school private-public partnerships that we're trying to show how to replicate. Um, But other communities, you know, they were putting hotspots at the local restaurant in town. And so people could go um, in the parking lot and access internet. Um, I think, too, for some of our providers, um, you know, being able to take devices out to cars and as people um, go to receive care and able to do some check-ins and things like that so people in rural communities have to be um, pretty creative problem solvers a lot of times because we don't have the same resources but um, again if they can find those right partnerships and um, the access piece we somehow make it work maybe it's not the the best system and you know the the um, maybe it's not sustainable long term, but I I've, I've seen some pretty creative ways they've they've been able to get people to the access they need.
0: I love your statement earlier that uh telehealth is not just about health care, but health in general. Mm-hmm. And uh, let let me ask you to look into the future a bit here. What what do you think? I'll I'll put it this way. How do you believe The events of 2020 are going to change the way we view healthcare delivery and public health in general for rural America?
1: Wow, that's a big question. That sounds like it should be somebody's dissertation (laughs) program. Um, Well, definitely. It feels like we're in a moment where we're we're never going back right like mm-hmm. um it's just its things have changed and they're going to continue on this trajectory we've just advanced light years um we've got a lot of things to work out in terms of of telehealth um a lot of regulations have been eased or um through executive order otherwise through this time. And so there's going to be some policy discussions and things like that. But um, I just, I mean, it's, it's here to stay. Um, I think, you know, like I said earlier, there's no perfect solution. It's not going to solve all of our issues, Um, but I think it is going to open a new world to people in, in rural communities. I think, um, you know, we talk about how transformative the internet was. Well, in a sense, this is just gonna open a whole new world to be able to get specialty care. Um, it's gonna reduce travel times. It's gonna help keep people close to home. Um, but we know with that there may be some some trade-offs also. And so we're just gonna have to wait and see.
0: Well, tell us again uh, the dates of your conference and give our listeners um, where, the information they need to go and uh, register so that they can take advantage of these wonderful sessions that you put together.
1: Okay, sure. The conference dates are November 18th, 19th, and 20th. And the pre-conference dates are November 10th, 11th, and 12th. One registration gives you access to all of the sessions. They, the sessions will be available through the end of February. Um, we are offering nursing CEUs, social worker CEUs, and then ETSU is providing general CEUs for people um, <clears throat> that need the continuing education credits and those Um, If you can't attend live, you can still, you have up to a month to watch the sessions and take the assessment needed for CEUs.
0: Okay. And uh, where can we go to register for the conference?
1: Our website is RHAT, that stands for Rural Health Association of Tennessee.org. So RHAT.org. And actually our new, um, we've got a new page that launches next Monday, so it's going to have a new look and feel and will be connected directly to our event page. So everybody will get instructions on how to log in and access all of our sessions.
0: Oh, new website. That's exciting. Uh, And we'll point out that also your conference coincides with uh, National Rural Health Day, right?
1: Oh, yes. Thank you for mentioning that. Yes. Yes. So, November 19th is National Rural Health Day, and um, we've got a great lineup of speakers that day also um, to help celebrate that day. So, one of the sessions that I think is going to be really interesting is from ETSU's Rural Health Research Center, and they are going to talk about the strengths and assets of rural communities, and um, addition to um, and instead of just focusing on the disparities and the inequities, they're really going to highlight the strengths, which is, you know, we've we've got strong faith community, we've got strong collaborations and partnerships, and how we can leverage those to keep moving role health forward.
0: Wow, that sounds like a very interesting session. Well, thank you so much for sharing with us today. Uh, my guest has been J.C. Warl. She is the executive director of the Rural Health Association of Tennessee, and their conference is coming up here very soon. Be sure to check out the website and uh, register for some of those uh, great sessions. JC, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And thank you for listening to Rural Broadband Today, where we take a look at the people and the issues shaping the rural broadband story across America. I'm your host, Stephen Smith, and this program is produced by Wordsouth a content marketing company. Please share this episode with your network and help us tell the Rural Broadband story. Thanks again for listening. Rural Broadband Today is a production of WordSouth, a content marketing company.